when she was performing, as she said, she wanted she was transformed into something divine. And she never forgot that. She never lost sight of it. And and I think she never lost sight of the fact that that she was working for justice. And I think today, so often as we li- live these very fragmented lives, um, and speaking you know, personally here, you feel this disconnect sometimes between the, the secular world you work in and the, the sacred world that you try to have this connection to. And Mahalia showed us how to do both of them. Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today, I'm speaking with W. Ralph Eubanks. Ralph is the author of The House at the End of the Road, the story of three generations of an interracial family in the American South, published by HarperCollins in 2009, and Ever is a Long Time, A Journey into Mississippi's Dark Past, published by Basic Books in 2003. For our book, Ralph wrote on Mahalia Jackson. Ralph, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about Mahalia Jackson. I'm really excited about this conversation. Thank you for making the time to do this today. Pleasure's all mine. To start off our conversation, could you give a brief summary of the significance of Mahalia Jackson for people who may not be familiar with her and her work? Uh, Jackson was one of the first, I would say, popular gospel singers in in the country. And, and eventually what she did was she used her celebrity and her renown as a gospel singer to promote social justice, in particular the civil rights movement. And I, I also argue for um, the rights of women in a movement where women were really cast to the margins. She was one of the few women who had this very prominent role in the civil rights movement. Uh, I'm One of the things that I'm very, I find really significant about, about Jackson is she always stayed with gospel music, unlike Sam Cooke and Aretha Franklin, who moved into a much more popular realm. She made a conscious choice to stay with performing gospel music, rarely doing anything that would be deemed secular, and continuing her work with people in the movement, you know, beginning with the Montgomery bus boycott, when she went to Montgomery to give a concert and when she was asked how much she charged, she says, I don't charge walking people. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Now, you also have a personal connection with Mahalia Jackson's music, right? Can you talk a little bit about the significance of her music in your own life? I think every black child growing up in the South, in the church, grew up hearing Mahalia Jackson sing. 
you you knew that music. It was, and I, and I think even what was really significant about Mahalia Jackson was she was one of those black gospel singers who had a sizable white audience as well. But for me, it was that music that she sang that that form of gospel which is which is called stretch out singing was a big part of the CME church where I grew up the Christian Methodist church which originally was the colored methodist episcopal church and that music um that comes from the holiness church migrated into other churches because it was so popular and and in some ways the um Mahalia Jackson's music is part of the soundtrack of my childhood, just as much as Aretha Franklin's was, or even you know driving, um, you know, long distances in the South on a Sunday night, which we often did, um, hearing her on the radio. Maybe after hearing a a sermon from the Reverend C. L. Franklin as well, which uh, I I remember all of those as well because you would. Clear Channel Radio was your friend in the American South, and that's how um, most people listened to music was through radio. We had, as I said, we had those Mahalia Jackson records, but my father only seemed to play one. Hmm. Um, And that has stuck with me my entire life. Yeah, so I'd like to ask you to read that passage from your chapter um, from the very beginning where you're talking about watching your father as he listens to Mahalia Jackson. Could you read that, please? On many a Sunday morning when I was growing up, my father, a slender man with smooth skin the color of warm caramel, would take a black and gray Sears Silvertone record player and roll it on its noisy wheeled stand down the hall into my parents' bedroom. Although he had a couple of Mahalia Jackson records, it seemed as if he played only one, an Apollo Records recording from 1957 called In the Upper Room with Mahalia Jackson. The cover featured a stained glass window in an empty church. The black and white photograph had a green tent behind it. And the title song, In the Upper Room, was the first track. When he listened to In the Upper Room, He was always dressed in a dark suit with a skinny tie. Even today, I can see him standing over the record and watching its incantatory spin as he listened to the music flowing from the scratchy speakers. His head was always bowed as Jackson quietly sang with the gentle accompaniment of her longtime pianist, Mildred Falls. Of course, As a child, I found my father's ritual annoying, since he seemed to be obsessed with the lyrics, particularly in the slower part, one of the song. The second part became much more up-tempo and had the bounce, Jackson often said, was an essential part of her music. But my father remained in a meditative state during the first part. It may be the fog of memory, but I think he would even play the first part several times lifting the phonograph needle with the greatest of care before letting the record move to part two, since to him, part one included the words and message of Mahalia Jackson, spoken just for him. In the Upper Room is a traditional spiritual, one whose power 
comes from its slow, meditative call to prayer, followed by a call-and-response affirmation of belief. The lyrics ask the listener to believe, but the singer must express belief for the song to get its message through. What captured my father each Sunday was that Mahalia Jackson sang in the upper room as if she was making a personal profession of faith and asking him to do the same. Thank you. You're such a beautiful reader. So can you talk a little bit now about your own writing process? How did you start to get into the story of Mahalia Jackson? What was that like for you? I found Mahalia's story, to be to be honest with you, very difficult to get into. I'm someone who's who loves to dig around in archives and find these untold stories in archives. And one of the things you have to realize about Mahalia Jackson is that she essentially had a sixth grade education. She was, there were no letters or diaries. So she was literate, but I would say barely literate. So in order to to get into her life, the usual ways that I would approach writing about someone like this weren't there. And I decided to start with performances. I think what got me started was I was reading this this article about Kirk Franklin um, by Vincent Cunningham, the New Yorker. And Vincent Cunningham said that, you know, Mahalia Jackson's music was a moral music. No one danced to Mahalia. And then I thought, well, I'm not sure that's true. And then I go and I find this performance at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1957, where people are dancing to her, and she's commanding. She's this commanding presence on the stage, uh, and I still remember what they how they introduce her. It is Sunday, and it is time now to listen to the world's greatest gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson, and she took the stage. So I decided what I had to do was look at her performances as a means of constructing a biography about her. The Studs Terkel archive at the Chicago History Museum and YouTube became my friend, watching her perform at um, the March on Washington, um, some of her Carnegie Hall performances, and the Newport performance, which for me was, that's where the light went off with me. Said, I saw that and I thought, this is how to do it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really different from uh, from really any other person in this book. So yeah, thanks for talking about that. I'd like to talk a little bit about Mahalia's performances as ministry, because you talk about that a lot in your chapter. And you referred in, in the section that you read already about her sort of seeing the ministry of connecting people with the divine, um, which certainly seems to have been a really important part of of how she saw her work. But then there's also this other piece that you talk about that, that she, she has this ministry, um, in civil rights and in connecting with the civil rights movement. Can you talk a little bit about her work there? Yes. Uh, I, there are, you know, several significant moments for Mahalia Jackson in the civil rights movement. And I would say it even goes back farther than, you know, before she makes that trip to Montgomery that I referenced earlier. She's in Lenox, Massachusetts. She's at a meeting with a group of 
um, musicologists who are interviewing her, trying to understand how she performs. What is her musical method? And knowing that she broke all these rules, how did she do it? And she, in the course of that interview, starts to go talk about that Jim Crow must go and that, you know, that somehow in this country, you know, black people are going to rise up and are going to stop this. This is before she does anything publicly. And, and it's only it's a few years after that, that Ralph Abernathy asked her to come to Montgomery. And then she becomes, uh, you know, she becomes a confidant of Martin Luther King as a result of her going to Montgomery and continues singing and supporting, singing in support of the work of Dr. King. She goes under the, on the Selma to Montgomery March. Uh, and then she also performs at the March on Washington in 1963. Uh, and that performance is one that I find equally moving because you know that that Mahalia stretched her time out there because she was really into it. She's she knew these people had come there to create change, and she was going to show them that she was with them. Mm. And she did that in her performance that day. So it was you. you she had these very subtle ways of of doing things that were, I think, at the. It was the way that most African Americans did things. There was a there was a subtle subversiveness in the way that she performed. Uh, I think, as opposed to a performer today who's doing something that's um, more along the lines of of protest or making some point of social change, where it's a lot more direct, she had to be indirect. And in being indirect, it was it was almost like the way that, you know, that that song Steal Away to Jesus is a subtle way of saying we're going to leave tonight. She was putting things in her performances, telling people we're gonna be marching toward freedom. And at the same time is getting that message to white audiences who admire her just her stance and she's saying you need to get this message too um she even does that in a performance that she records on studs turkle's radio show to a largely white audience and and she makes it clear to them you need to get on board with this yeah, so I really, I want to talk about Mahalia's subversiveness more. Um, but before we do that, could you read um, the excerpt from your chapter about um, when Mahalia is performing at the March on Washington? Jackson became a close confidant of Martin Luther King Jr., so close that in times of trouble and distress, King would call Jackson on the phone and ask her to sing Thomas Dorsey's Precious Lord, take my hand. At the urging of Dr. King, Jackson performed I've Been Buked and I've Been Scorned at the Lincoln Memorial at the March on Washington in August 1963. Given the expressive way she sang that day, it's hard not to see this song as a witness to all the injustices 
she had experienced in her life. She also sang the song for those who had traveled to the March on Washington, since she knew they had been buked and scorned as well. As she looked out from where she sat on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, she saw the faces of a nation of people marching together, like the vision of Moses, that the children of Israel would march into Canaan. I've been buked and I've been scorned is a song that serves as witness to the pain and suffering of slavery. And Jackson's performance transformed the song into one about the pain and suffering of Jim Crow. March on Washington organizer Baird Rustin stood stately and composed at Jackson's side as she sang, holding a pad that probably held a minute-by-minute schedule of speakers. Once Jackson had been singing for three minutes, Rustin reached toward her, but she motioned to him, without taking her eyes off her audience, that she was not done and continued singing. Jackson's Jackson shouted a heartfelt hallelujah, extended her arms, and began to move as if she was in church. Halfway through her nearly seven-minute performance, Jackson put her hands on her hips and moved her shoulders as she shouted to the crowd, I'm going to tell my Lord when I get home that you've been mistreating me for so long. It's almost as if she was exercising some emotional restraint since Jackson certainly would have made her movements even more dramatic had the stage not been so crowded that day, given the way she often moved around the stage as she sang and used her hands, body, and feet. The movements Jackson usually made on stage were what she called demonstrating, which had many meanings, but in this case referred to showing her connection to the Holy Spirit. Instead of more demonstrative movements. Jackson twisted her head as she sang and used the crown-like hat she wore to frame the emotion in her face. Later, seated near King as he took the stage, Jackson continued her witness. As King stood at the podium, she encouraged him to speak. Tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. That's what those close to the podium heard the gospel great shout out midway through the speech. King had urged Jackson to perform I've Been Buked and I've Been Scorned, and now she was making her own request of Dr. King. Jackson's prompt had a startling effect. Without pausing, King pushed his notes off to the side. He stopped looking down at the prepared text, and as he went extemporaneous, his voice took on a preacherly, oratorical style. The historic section of the speech famously begins, and so, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Some believe that without Jackson's urging that day, King would have delivered a different speech and would not have talked about his dream. And perhaps without Jackson's being moved by the Spirit as she sang at the Lincoln Memorial, as well as her using her voice to demonstrate to the audience what it felt like to be buked and scorned, she may never have asked King to tell the audience about his dream.
Thank you. I love that story. And I didn't, I didn't know that until I read your chapter, what, what sort of part she had in that day and in, um, in King's speech that day. So yeah, thank you. Um, so I promised I wanted to talk about subversiveness. So I'd like to go back to that for a minute. When I read your chapter and hear about these kinds of ways that she was subversive to make change, I'm reminded of some of the characters in the Bible who are crafty, people who are kind of um, usually disempowered in their context. And so they use their cleverness and sometimes sneakiness to right wrongs, to to make things better for them um, or for their people. How do you think Mahalia's craftiness fits into her witness? I think the craftiness, I see a lot of Mahalia Jackson's craftiness through through, a, to be honest, a gendered lens. Um, women, particularly in black Protestant churches, were not allowed to preach. Mm. And uh, what I argue is that what Mahalia Jackson did so often, when she was in a church, she was preaching. And I believe that in her own way, she got you know, black Protestants to see that women could be preachers. And that's, I think, part of Jackson's subversiveness is she was trying to get that message across, not only about black equality, but about equality for women. And could she really express that through um, through feminism? No. But it was, as someone who had been a poor washerwoman, she knew what that inequality felt like, what it was like to be poor, what it was like to have no power. Mm. So as someone who had gained a lot of power and prominence in the world, she decided to use that power and prominence for the good of others rather than for her own personal gain. Yeah. Well, and in addition to some of these kind of, you know, crafty, subversive qualities, she also was a really fiery character, right? I mean, she was um, very assertive. She was very savvy. Sometimes she was profane. Can you tell us a couple of stories that, that show some of these sides of her personality? Oh, oh yes. I mean, I, I, mean, I, mean I, I think we, I really don't want people to think of Mahalia Jackson as this otherworldly saint. She, um, she really loved her, loved, loved getting paid. Mahalia worked in cash. Now, you didn't write Mahalia a check. And a filmmaker did write her a check for a very small amount. And she actually went up to the man and said, this is only like $150. What do you expect me to do with this? Wipe my ass with it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and that was Jules Sherwin who made um, a documentary about her. And Mahalia had just been in Imitation of Life. And she was paid quite generously for the three weeks she was out in Hollywood. And she thought, people in the movie business make a lot of money, and, and he's paying me $150? So she was, she was direct. And... And I think that's one of the reasons she and Studs Terkel had such a good rapport is that he was equally direct. And they just, you know, when you listen to the two of them talk, you can see 
These are two people who genuinely respect each other and understand each other. Uh, and I mean, he says, if anyone has their knows how to make up their mind and, and sticks with it, it's Mahalia Jackson. And she was a she was a she was a tough woman. I mean, I mean, getting st- I mean, she would get stopped in Louisiana, you know, from performances, and the cops would ask her, you know, why are you driving this lavender Cadillac? And she'd say, well, it it belongs to you know my madam. And she had a woman that she would have them call, and I think she, they. And the, and the name that they gave her was Mildred Dorsey. Well, that's Thomas Dorsey that she worked with, who wrote Precious Lord, Take My Hand, and Mildred Falls. It's a combination of those two names. That's a pretty crafty thing to do when you think about it. And she only carried a little bit of money in her purse, but the rest of the money, Mahalia carried around in her brassiere. <laughs> she would put, you know, she would have, you know, hundreds of dollars, maybe even a thousand dollars stuffed in her bra because she worked. She worked in cash. So as I understand it, um, in Mahalia Jackson's time, there was sometimes pressure placed on gospel singers to stay in gospel, to not cross over into soul. Um, and when I when I read a little bit about that in your chapter, it reminded me of this Colbert Report episode from years ago, um, where Stephen Colbert is interviewing Mavis Staples, and he asks her about this, if, if um, there was pressure, if she felt pressure in, you know, the 50s and 60s uh, to stay in gospel. And she acknowledges, yeah, that there was some pressure, um, and that she says that sometimes people who did make that crossover into soul were accused of singing the devil's music. Um, and so he, then he asks her in his, you know, Colbert Report character, if she ever sang the devil's music. And I've always remembered her response because she said, the devil ain't got no music, which I love. Um, so could you talk about this dynamic in Jackson's musical career? How, how was that at play? And how do you think she saw the distance between the secular and the sacred? Well, she saw the secular and the sacred as connected. And, you know, she, um, you know, her big hit, you know, I Will Move On Up a Little Higher, was a song that was played on jukeboxes in bars all around Chicago. And, you know, Studs Terkel asked her, you know, did it bother you? She said, no. She said, I think that we should all go through the highways. We want to sing sacred music in the highways and the hedges so that everyone can hear it. Mm-hmm. So she was not opposed to her music, sacred though it is, being seen as secular, which moving up a little higher was seen that way by uh, a lot of a lot of listeners. Mahalia Jackson has been written about before, of course, um, but this is kind of a new context for a chapter about Mahalia Jackson to talk about her as a Christian witness for justice. Why do you think she belongs in this book? There, there are lots of people out there who we think of as kind of the, the noisy, um, you know, who are clanging the drum for, for justice and change, who do it very... Um, I guess with, I don't know if, if loudly is the way to, to put it, or they, they do it with, that, that, that garners a little bit more direct attention. You know, there's, I think we think, of, we think of someone who's going for social changes doing direct action. And 
the marching, the protesting, the haranguing of of public officials, and um, being a bit of a rabble rouser. And that's not who Mahalia Jackson was. <laughs> uh, and I think she belongs in this book because she was a quiet witness. Um, her voice was nothing, was not quiet. But it was through that voice that she pushed for social change. And I would even argue <clears throat> that for a black woman singing gospel in the, in the 40s and 50s, uh, during a time of segregation, and having you know, white audiences you know, come to, to Carnegie Hall, that, for a lot of people, that was the a lot of whites at that time, particularly in the East, that may have been their only exposure to African American culture. And she brought some of those people along with her in the change that she was working for. And they knew she was working for it. Uh, and I think maybe even changed a few hearts and minds. And there's a there's a story I think I use in in the book where she she makes a trip to Paris, and there are these two feuding um, music, I guess really music critics. And she goes there, and she brings them together, and she gets them to settle their differences. And that's, and that's just, that just tells you the type of person that she was. She wanted people to resolve their differences. She wanted to see change happen. But the only way that she knew how to do that was by singing. She didn't have education that would allow her to be a great orator like Martin Luther King. She you know, was not a writer, so she couldn't write uh, and advocate for change. All she had was her voice. And she used that to her fullest to make the change in the world that she wanted to have. We talked earlier in our conversation about how Mahalia Jackson's ministry was kind of in these two parts, that there's the piece of um, a ministry of connecting people with the divine, and there's also this ministry of um, working for, for change and civil rights um, in particular. So I'd like to ask you to reflect on how Mahalia Jackson is a witness that we need for today in both of those parts. So first, how do you think Mahalia Jackson is an important witness for us today in terms of connecting people with the divine? Uh, I think that we, we need people who will do that connection with the divine fearlessly, which is what I, I believe Mahalia Jackson did. I think it was very brave of her to do that whole gospel performance at Newport and arrange for you know other gospel performers to come there. And she saw that as ministry. I mean, there's no one in that crowd who looks like they were they would be a regular churchgoer. Um, but she thought, I'm going to go somewhere where there aren't people who are being ministered to, and I am going to minister to them. Uh, and I think. Today, I mean, I, I recently saw Kirk Franklin perform, and I was very much taken by his performance. But I thought of Mahalia Jackson, and I, during his performance, even though he's singing about Jesus, I, I felt 
he was more trying to get the crowd to dance than to connect with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Mahalia was there to get people to connect with the divine, with Jesus, the divine, with the Lord. She didn't care whether you danced or not. And I, that was that evening with Kirk Franklin. I danced, but I didn't feel this connection with the divine. Yeah, that's great. So then how about that second part? How do you think Mahalia Jackson is a witness that we need today when it comes to her ministry through social change and her civil rights work? If, if someone were to ask me, well, what can we learn from Mahalia Jackson today about social justice? It's kind of this way to, you can look at her life and her performance as a way of pushing for this justice without, um, in a way that was very subtle and not, and she wasn't afraid to do it. And I think now, I mean, we're in a different age of social media. Someone's maybe really afraid to do that because it's going to affect how their record sales sells, how many times it's streamed. There are a lot more factors that people are thinking about with musicians in particular, gospel musicians that Mahalia didn't think about. Hmm. She wanted, now that's not to say Mahalia didn't want to get paid because she did, but when she was performing, as she said, she wanted, she was transformed into something divine and she never forgot that. She never lost sight of it. And, and I think she never lost sight of the fact that, that she was working for justice. And I think today, so often as we li- live these very fragmented lives, um, and speaking you know, personally here, you feel this disconnect sometimes between the, the secular world you work in and the, the sacred world that you try to have this connection to. And Mahalia showed us how to do both of them. I think she never forgot the way that she grew up. And no matter how famous she became, no matter how much money she had, um, I mean, there were things that, that, that happened to her that she, she was often reminded of being a black woman. And, and that being a black woman meant in a lot of realms that she had no power. And, and instead of being downtrodden by that, she asserted the power that she had, which was her voice, and used that as a means of changing white hearts and minds and getting black hearts and minds focused on freedom and justice. How do you think you were changed by spending so much time with Mahalia Jackson over these last couple of years? I have to say that it really, it put me in, in touch with my, you know, my roots in, in the, the Methodist church. Uh, and, and it's, and I think since I, actually, the interesting thing about this is that since writing this piece, I now in DC, I go to a church with a gospel mass. Oh, wow. I think it just really, it's, it made me conscious 
of the power of music to impact our our faith in in moments when I feel a little bit trouble, I listen to Mahalia Jackson. Mm-hmm. I am known to kind of turn up, I will move on up a little higher when I'm feeling a little bit low now. Ralph, thank you so much. It's been such a joy to talk to you about Mahalia Jackson. It's been good to talk to you too. Can I Get a Witness, the podcast, is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about Lived Theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to project director Charles Marsh. The book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Urban's Publishing Company and is available in all your favorite formats from all your favorite booksellers. Thank you for listening to Can I Get a Witness? the podcast.